happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus that serves students in K-12 schools across Montana as a supplemental program. I want to welcome you this evening to the EdTech Situation Room, our weekly podcast that's broadcast live on Wednesday evenings and then spread through the magic of the internet around the world to people's smartphones, iPads, desktop computers, heck, probably an old iPod or two. Uh, also, happens to, to tune into our podcast. And joining me this evening, as always, is Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing this evening? Good evening, Jason. With the wonderful uh, wallpaper runner that you have there with fish, I'm thinking you may have one of those, those uh, early versions of you know, animatronics with the, the fish that we could push and you would sing and dance. So it, um, uh, I'll work on that. Maybe I should grab one of those and hack an Alexa into it. And maybe that would be a nice, uh, a, a nice upgrade to that particular high technology. I think that I did actually see a toy hack that involved that fish. So yes, now everyone has their assignment garage sale time. Your quest will be find the singing fish and create a toy hack. So I am Wes Fryer. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, where we have been having unseasonably warm temperatures in the the 70s. And uh, I I will just say without much more personal disclosure, I'm thrilled that it's uh, basically payday and uh, this month is over. It's it's been a long month. (laughs) Someday we'll get beyond uh, those days, but our son is 20 years old today. It is his birthday, so shout out to Alexander. And glad to be joining Jason for our regular dive into tech news and, and discussions. And just to totally give away the show, you know, gasp. We, we've been called geeks on other podcasts. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's start there. So a shout out to our colleagues and friends at the EdTech Takeout Podcast, which is hosted by Jonathan and Mindy. Um, from the uh, DLGWAEA, the Grantwood AEA Digital Learning Team. And last week for Thanksgiving, they did their episode 35 was a kind of a Thanksgiving special to talk about what they're thankful for. And they let off with the EdTech Situation Room podcast. But uh, amongst the headlines of that was uh, Jonathan called us a little geeky. So I guess we... Nerd, 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 nerdy, I think. It was a little... Was it nerdy or, yeah, something along those lines. But, I mean, of course, you know, we here at the Edit Situation Room take that as a badge of courage. Uh, You know, it's no longer the early 80s, so that's not going to get you beat up in kindergarten anymore. So um, I would say... You know, good news for us. So shout out to you folks. You are something that we're thankful for as well, and you're certainly part of my regular podcasting media diet. Absolutely. And if you are not listening, I mean, you're, obviously you're you're either watching this or, or you're listening to this. Um, podcasts are such a wonderful way to expand your idea horizon. I can't tell you how enriched I am on a, on a weekly basis. Um, by the fact that I'm able to listen to podcasts. So, you know, whether whether it's a, a narrow focus podcast or, you know, some of, some of the really big ones that we've seen, I don't know, who knows how many note, listeners note to self has in some of these, you know, it, it really is a wonderful thing. So perhaps in this, uh, you know, post Thanksgiving time and we're in the season of giving, you know, one of the things we can consider giving to others is the gift of favorite podcasts and being able to show that because it's, we certainly live in a day of distraction and a time when we can be sucked into the screen and, and we all risk that. But at the same time, 
if, if you just you know think for a moment how difficult it was perhaps at some time of your life if you're you know beyond a certain age to to get things in the library to be able to get articles right we, we joke about this in presentations sometimes who remembers ask eric searches and playing you know paying 10 cents a copy to you know print that microfish article that you got you know those days are obviously long gone and so it's there are new challenges um but there's also i would say new pleasures and where you really had to be much more limited in your perspective interactions that you would have with people and ideas. Um, we, we live in a, in a very um, open-ended era for, for all of that. So I'm actually going to open up the chat channel. If you're tuning in live, please um, notice on the right side of the YouTube screen, there there is a chat window there. And feel free to let us know you're out there and uh, share any questions or comments that you may have. And um, we will do our best to, to field those questions as we go along tonight. Well, Wes, um, we have a bit of breaking news, and so we don't have a breaking news theme, but I'll do something newsy sounding. Shagung, gung, 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 gung. Breaking news. And this is something that started yesterday and has been resolved this afternoon, but um, The Verge reported on this, Wired reported on this. In fact, every major technology news outlet noted this. There was a massive security hole in the latest version of macOS, High Sierra, um, uh, that allowed you to, and there was some specialized conditions. This did not mean that every single computer was easily accessible in data, but basically the, the, the hack was that if you were in a dialogue screen where you were typing in a username and password into macOS, you could type the word root into the username and press a login a couple of times or okay a couple of times, and it would let you pass after a couple of clicks. I was not able to successfully recreate this on either a Mac laptop or I have an iMac at work, but I know a couple of folks that were able to recreate this, so it was definitely real. And something that I haven't seen in Apple in a very long time, they released a patch for Mac OS today. It, it, it appeared, the notification appeared on my computer midday today, and it said, you need to install this now. It didn't even give me the option to wait till, till later. It was either install or find out more. And so after or during the lunch hour today, I installed it and also asked the rest of the Mac users in my office uh, to also install this right away because as a um, school administrator, there is you know security uh, concerns related to student data. And so we updated those right away when we found out about the hack. And so first, Wes, uh, are any of your machines on High Sierra that were at risk? We do have some. Uh, we have rolled out uh, some new MacBook Airs and... But there's there's only a few folks that have really been piloting it. Uh, we tend to take a pretty conservative approach to the new OS, and this is also self-preservation because many times we have Canon multifunction printers. I don't know if this affects everyone in other multifunction printing worlds, but it seems that every time there's a major OS, it breaks the printers, and and that you know we only only have a staff of about 170, but you know if everyone's printer is not working and you have two and a quarter people. It, it, that's that's a nightmare scenario. So we've been pretty conservative, only have a handful running high Sierra. Um, most of the users are running Sierra, but uh, yeah, it's uh, nice that we've kind of dodged that bullet. I will say though, people 
and this is a big deal. Okay. This isn't a small, you know, security thing, but if we were to really talk about security on the Windows side, I mean, the number of patches, the number of vulnerabilities, it, it's so disproportionate. So we do definitely hear people talk about the sky falling when anything happens with Apple and, and Apple has tended to be the, the more secure platform. Um, we've only in the last couple of years started to really see more instances of malware and, you know, Mac targeted attacks. Um, right. And it's, and it's a lot more common. So anyway, yeah, it is uh, on the one hand, sorry to see this. On the other hand, great to see, you know, people identify the issue. Um, Apple responded very quickly, as you hope that they would do. And uh, as you point out, it was not not a typical upgrade when you want to sort of scenario. This is something that's being being pushed. And as we've talked about security on the show and we've talked about Internet of Things, you know, this is the kind of environment that we are going to be migrating into uh, if we're going to be safe. And that's going to be right. where our devices are able to receive forced firmware updates and where they're going to be much more app store like where, you know, it's it's something that just regularly happens that, oh, it's it's the new update. That this is what this is what happens, I guess, to Tesla cars all the time, right? They're plugged in, you know, right. in the garage or whatever, and then overnight they download this update and hey, now you have, you know, self-driving car function or, you know, some other kind of functionality, or, you know, you have a security vulnerability that's been patched. So we're we're moving in that direction. And I would say from a school technology director point of view, I have not read this yet, so I haven't put it in the show. Um, but but just looking at the new ways of managing things, you know, from the cloud with a, with mobile device management, which that's not new, but, you know, we're at maybe having to move beyond the way that we've imaged machines uh, to more, more of a cloud restore and, uh, you know, a mobile device management world. So like everything else, it's a dynamic world. And it's certainly being driven a lot by security concerns. Absolutely. So. Okay, well, with that breaking news, um, or I should say breaking news out of the way, Wes, where should we go next? Well, let's go down to, uh, I think, the first article you put in about YouTube from TechCrunch. This is from today, November the 29th, and it's called YouTube is Not for Kids. Um, I dropped another one in there about jellies. Um, you want to give, give a little summary about this? Um, sure. Uh, we actually posted an article last week, and I think it, it, it posted into this week's that's, that's only uh, tangentially related to this, but... Basically, the article last week was about that YouTube had been called out to the carpet because there was a number of uh, videos that were disturbing, um, that suggested uh, adults preying on children sexually. It was a very, very, very terrible thing, and um, uh, Google stepped in pretty quickly to deal with it, and then there was some hubbub about that it was still broken for a long time after the article uh, had talked about that and, and, and called out YouTube for that. And it's inspired other discussions related to YouTube. In particular, there's a really excellent article um, from today at, uh, in TechCrunch that basically says that um, um, YouTube is not intended for kids. And the idea here is that um, it's it's a, a obviously a, a, an important platform, right? It is a, a, a media platform, but because there is relatively little parental controls on YouTube and there's no policing of content on YouTube beyond copyright protection, um, it's not a place to send your kids just freely and open to unless you put some protections into place, right? Now, part of that is use, utilizing the YouTube Kids app from Google, which uh, does do a, it's my understanding, a mixed but leaning better job at trying to identify content that's 
intended for kids. But in the same way, it's it's not like you're sending kids to Netflix. It's not like you're sending kids to um, uh, PBS Kids, for example. It is an open internet product, which means you have to be cautious about it at least, or mindful that your kids could stumble into things that are not great. And of course, Kids are kids, right? They're going to stumble into videos, um, especially since you know, YouTube is built around keeping you engaged over time, right? Like that's the reason why it shows you suggested videos at the end of the desktop experience. The mobile experience just continues to play videos, right? It doesn't really give you much option in that. It sends you on to a related video. And where kids could get into something that's maybe less than tasteful, uh, it could, it, from a standpoint of, of content, it could turn you know more negative quickly. And so um, I don't believe wholly in the YouTube isn't for kids realm because I think there are protections we can put in place to do that. But it's important to understand that it is an open Internet tool and should be monitored and thoughtfully administered as a, a tool or media tool inside a household. So I guess, Wes, to start with, where are you at on the broad headline here? And... Uh-oh. Shoot. Uh, are you, am I still with you? Yes. Okay, we froze. Um, so, you know, broadly, this shouldn't be a news flash for anyone. You do not want to send young children just out to YouTube. And I think most people are aware of that from a commenting standpoint and a related video standpoint. Uh, don't know if it was three or four years ago when I became aware of the YouTube for Kids app. It is for iOS and Android. So you do have to be on a um, you do have to be on a, a tablet device in order to use it. Um, there's there's still issues there, right? I mean, like so, real popular videos are unboxing videos for toys, right? So I mean, if you are you know concerned about how consumerist and we're entering the holiday season and you know gift giving and we're going to hear all about <clears throat> all kinds of the latest rage toys and stuff. You know, there's all kinds of issues. It's a reflection of society. But, yeah, just like we wouldn't send our, our kids to the mall, I mean, th this is actually just the story of the open web, right? I mean, if you have right. a Google search bar, you know, what, what, are, what are kids going to search for? So I put the YouTube Kids app uh, into the, into the uh, show notes. Um, I also put a link from TechCrunch two days ago from November 27th uh, that was titled Jellies is a kid-friendly parent-approved alternative to YouTube Kids. And so this article is, is also criticizing YouTube kids for some of that consumerism and, you know, just some of the of the rabbit hole, I guess, that, that you can get into as far as related videos because, you know, there is, you know, there is policing and whitelisting that's going on with those videos. But uh, it's, I think, $5 a month and it's a subscription. And, you know, if you want to put your kid on a tablet and feel comfortable not paying much attention to what they're doing, then I guess a subscription service like that, you know, could make a lot of sense. Um, but I'm also going to say there are some really simple things that you can do in YouTube to reduce the probability that something extremely inappropriate is going to, you know, come up. And at our Google camp, or we called it G camp a couple weeks ago, um, I did a session called YouTube uh, tips and tricks. In fact, I think I have the audio of that that's up on uh that I have a fuel for educational change agents supplementary podcast channel, and it's just lightly edited or unedited, uh, you know, conference presentations that I share and others. And it's it was amazing to me how many people there. The number one pain point with YouTube was advertising, and they did not know how to block the ads 
for YouTube, you know, as a starting point, because even advertisements can, you know, certainly be distractions, but they can also be inappropriate and, you know, be a problem uh, instructionally. So I dropped a link to my favorite ad blocker for the browser, um, and that is uh, uBlock Origin. In fact, this is crazy. I don't know why all these ads are coming up, but in our Hangout, it must be some kind of a glitch. It's like on ad 985 blocking. It just keeps on saying block, block. But it'll show you a little red uh, shield and then a number of how many ads have been blocked. Um, at the bottom of your YouTube, now it kind of goes to, to unlimited, um, you know, uh, what's that called? Scrolling when, when you scroll down. Um, but if you uh, click on your, uh, I guess, icon there in the corner and go into uh, some settings, I think um, you can go to the bottom and turn on what's called a restricted mode. So um, you don't want to be scrolling through all of the, of the videos, but go to your settings and you'll see language choices, you'll see location choices, but then there's something called restricted mode. And so you can choose to turn that on or off and um, you know, it's, it's something that we have on in schools. Most of the time you're going to have some kind of, of restriction in terms of videos and, and YouTube. Um, I had a, an English faculty member at our high school a couple of weeks ago who was, who was actually pretty upset because she was trying to show these videos to her students and she couldn't get to them. I was sort of mystified because we have a pretty open filter and it turns out that that was turned off so that some of these videos that she was, uh, which were not inappropriate videos, they were, um, just, you know, some, some things, they were about some contentious topics. Let's just let's say that, that, you know, she wanted sure. kids to engage with and these, you know, related to novels they were reading and things that they were studying. And so anyway, that was the fix. It was just simply turning off the restricted mode. So I think there's a lot of different options that we have. Uh, it's important for us to not, you know, turn kids loose on the internet to just do whatever they want to do. Uh, and I do think, sadly, that is a parenting strategy for some folks is to just say, well, here's your tablet, Joey, you know, just go over here for a couple hours and, you know, entertain yourself. And um, if, if, if somebody, if you're going to do that or you know somebody who's going to do that, you might tell them about jellies or certainly about YouTube kids. But it's, it's just probably not a great idea to, you know, leave young children alone. Uh, with a web-connected device and, and not be checking in with them regularly to see what's going on. Last thought is, I've talked about this on the show, uh, <clears throat> we're using the uh, the uh, actual kind of firewall tool. Um, uh, what is it called? Dis uh, Connect Disney? No, what is it called? Disney Go? Why am I not even able to think about it? I'll have to open it up on my phone. Um, it's the tool that allows us to um, see what's happening on our uh, on our circle home circle with Disney. So circle go is the, is the mobile thing that you can pay for so that it works on cellular. So it just allows you to see, you know, time duration as far as apps and, and websites and allows you to selectively block some things and allows you to have conversations because, you know, in with all this, uh, I think what's most important is having conversations about the choices that we're making and ultimately equipping kids to be able to make independent choices. And, and that is a scary thing. And, you know, depending on the age of, of the child, probably the amount of freedom that you give or, or take back is going to is going to change. So, And I have a couple other suggestions regarding uh, managing YouTube. Um, I don't pay for this extra, but as a uh, Google Music or Google Play Music subscriber, which is something I pay $10 a month for, I've also been given a subscription to YouTube Red. And YouTube Red is a really great service 
Um, I'm not sure, and I can't remember what the retail price is. I think it's like $10 a month on its own, right? And so I, I hope this lasts forever that I get this because I'm not sure if I can justify paying the $10 a month without it. But YouTube Red adds a number of interesting features that I think is also useful for a parent that want to utilize YouTube as a, you know, an engagement or distraction strategy for your kid. And I get, I get that as a, um, I, I get that as a, uh, well, kind of a sort of parent now. So, First and foremost, uh, it allows you to go ad-free on YouTube. So whenever I go to YouTube on either my phone or desktop computer, there's no more ads anymore because YouTube Red takes care of that. There's another strategy, I think it's a little more subtle here, but could be quite useful. YouTube Red allows you to download videos to your device, right? So you could go to um, 15 videos on your iPad, press the download button, and it downs them locally to that. And you could go through and pick 15 videos for your kid, turn the internet off of the iPad, and suddenly now you have a, a restricted device that your, your, your kiddo can just watch uh, just those 15 videos, for example. And so, you know, part of it is being a tech-savvy parent, um, that's not something that we talk about enough. I think broadly in society, there is a lot of hand-wringing about what technology brings into homes that is negative. But I think a little bit of knowledge and empowerment can really help parents make better decisions with their kids about how to utilize these devices. So YouTube Red is also a wonderful uh, strategy. And I would also add for teachers, YouTube Red is an excellent way to get around a YouTube block in your district. And so if you have a, a device that plugs into like a projector, for example, in your classroom, Room, iPad or phone that's got some sort of video out strategy, uh, you can download whatever video you want externally and then bring it into your classroom via that device as well. I have one more comment about YouTube Kids, but I first will bring you the, the, the comment of a proud parent. Oh gosh, I don't know if we'll be able to see that or not. Um, hey, Richard, turn off the light. Uh, so my eighth grade daughter just did a, a uh, no, it's not going to be that great, scatter plot. Uh, she did a uh, lab today where they were uh, measuring temperature of an unknown substance and the water bath. And so I was just helping her uh, express those times as decimals. And by herself, she figured out how to do a scatter plot comparison with Google Sheets. Woohoo! Go, Rachel. That's okay. awesome. Um, back to our uh, regular programming. Um, my other thought about YouTube Kids is really consider as a teacher whether or not you want to put that on your device. So my wife, uh, prior to coming to our school for the last four years, was teaching in, a, in an iPad one-to-one -one, uh, school, Positive Tomorrows. And her kids would, um, you know, get into some research, of course, as, as third and fourth graders do. And, and sometimes it was animals and bats and all kinds of different things that they would research. And so she's actually talking about that. And she's, she has chosen not to put YouTube kids on her classroom iPads. And she's in a shared iPad situation now. But part of it is because she doesn't want them to just become rabid consumers of media and video content at school. They're using their iPads to create. They're using their iPads to make and to share. Um, however, when they go into research mode, you know, she hasn't said this for sure, but I'm, I'm betting that she's going to, uh, you know, ask me as a technology director to put that on her iPads through the mobile device manager because YouTube Kids has a search box that you can enable. And if kids are going to do, for instance, uh, research about, man, I just realized my microphone is way over here and I may not have even been, it's not a very, very good move. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very useful tool. And so kids can be, you know, researching dolphins or horses or, you know, kangaroos or, or whatever. And 
where you would not ever want them to be just searching YouTube for pretty much anything openly. You'd want to pre-screen videos and, and have that as a hot list. Um, she has found, of course, with still supervision, but less supervision than, you know, sitting over every child's shoulder, which you, you can't do in a, in a classroom full of kids. Um, you know, they can, they can search the YouTube kids app. So anyway, that's just another, <clears throat> another thought. And, uh, mobile device managers do have this ability to limit the number of apps that are visible. They can actually be installed on the device, but they don't have to be visible to the students. And so we have not gotten into the um, Apple Classroom versions of that, which some of that has more to do with monitoring and you can lock kids into apps and stuff like that. But we have used in our Tab Pilot Mobile Manager um, the ability to uh, set up uh, lock, well, to set up uh, screen layouts and you can even, you know, do it different, you know, by different classes. So I think that is worth, worth considering. And I, I agree with your point too, Jason, we need to, we need to be talking about these things as far as digital parenting more. And I'm looking forward to this spring when we're going to be, um, re-energizing our digital citizenship initiative at school and providing at least a couple opportunities for parents to get together and talk about these kinds of issues and also, um, you know, strategies as well as, you know, apps and solutions that can address some of these things. And yeah, that, that's a great strategy, Wes. And I think that's something if you are in a position in your district where, you know, you are part of the kind of tech savvy teachers of your building or you're an IT director, bring parents in, you know, and I, I think that, that that not only, you know, helps, you know, serve your mission as educators, right? Like these kids are away from you, you know, two thirds of the day and, and with their parents. And so you've got that knowledge, you definitely want to share it. But the other reason why that's important is because it helps build goodwill in the community related to technology, right? Um, a lot of schools have to go um, with levy asks to the communities to try to find uh, information, or I'm sorry, try to find resources and funding to bring more computers or update computers into a school. And I think the schools that, that see technology as a critical part of their education environment, you know, need to bring parents in to educate them and also to see the, the technology in your school, right? And I think that's an important community connection. Um, 15 years, 20 years ago, it's, it's all starting to meld together now that I'm, 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 I'm a, uh, moving to the late career teacher moniker, but um, there was a grant program I was involved in in my own school that brought in parents, this is the late 90s, um, for the purpose of teaching them how to make calendars on a computer, like gift calendars, right? And there was calendar makers and stuff, you know, back in the day that allowed you to print out, you know, customized calendars and photos and stuff. And um, it's, it's not rocket uh, like, it's not like advanced rocket science you're teaching, but it really created a lot of goodwill between our school building and community members that want to come in to use technology in a good practical way. So, yeah, if you can engage parents and communities and adults in that way, I think it's very much to your benefit. I've got a story to tell that'll segment to, I think, an article you dropped in, Jason, about email being broken or email sucks. Yeah, can they, email's broken. Can anybody fix it? Uh, let's flash back to 1997-98. This was the beginning of email. I was a fourth grade teacher at Wheelock Elementary in Lubbock, Texas, and, you know, as you might not be shocked to know, was an early adopter as far as technology and, and computers in our school. And so our principal had, you know, talked with me and we set up uh, an opportunity because we had Apple IIEs in our computer lab to go to uh, Lubbock Christian University. And uh, Carl Mahan, a, a friend, was there and uh, got us in the lab. And I remember the excitement of the teachers. This was like, this is professional development right before Thanksgiving, okay? So it's right about this time. 
one of the worst times to do professional development, right? What do you want to be doing? Leaving, you know, going on your vacation. But anyway, sometimes we do this in school. We had the Monday and Tuesday before Thanksgiving to do our professional development. But it was very exciting to introduce teachers to email for the first time. And I, I just vividly remember that and, and the glee and and excitement of being able to communicate and, you know, contacting family members and, you know, just, just how wonderful that was. So flash forward to this, you know, this afternoon driving home as, as my wife is talking about, you know, her personal email box and, you know, swearing off, I'm never going to share my email again, you know, just because the quantity of spam has, has increased to the point where, um, you know, she really needs to, to do some things about that. So what about email, Jason? Is it, does it really suck and is it broken? Well, so here's the problem, right? Um, email and, and, and I feel like I have a unique perspective on this because 90% of my interaction with students, teachers, and parents in my program, and I run a digital school, is via email. And I've learned some really hard lessons um, since starting this job in 2010. As an example of this, um, I am an efficiency guy. I want to get through the day and, and get as much done as possible. And I crank through email all day long. One of the things that my program has a good reputation of is, is answering emails quickly and efficiently. And I've learned over time that you have to add lots of pleasantries to email to have the tone not come off as terrible. And one of the things that I do to make that an efficiency piece is I use text expansion, right? So as an example of this, if you type .pn on a keyboard that I have text expansion set up for, and I do on every platform I use, it, that stands for parent, nice. And what that does is it puts out 30 pre thought through pleasant phrases that I can add to the core of an email to say hello. And it's things like, I'm glad we're connected on this issue, or thanks so much for emailing me so we can speak about this issue directly, or I think it'd be best if we get on the phone and talk through this. What time is best for you to do that? I have .tn, ticket nice. I have um, .te, oh, actually .teacher, puts teacher nice, right? Things when I'm talking to my faculty, I want to be able to add pleasantries into that. And the bottom line is, is that that goes a long way to encouraging people. And, it, you know, it's, it's, the, the, it's part of it is that when you're dealing with someone that's significantly angry, if you respond in the same way, it's going to crank things up hardcore. And what was really interesting about that particular article, yeah, email is pretty terrible, but billions of emails are sent today. It's still a major communication piece for individuals that on a professional basis that need to be connected with one another. Now that article makes the point that we just need to get over it and write and just treat email like an informal communication piece. I disagree pretty substantially, right? I think we owe it to one another to add pleasantries to things, even if they are maybe pretty thought through pleasantries in my case. But the bottom line is, is that uh, email is pretty terrible, but I just don't know the alternative, right? Text messaging really isn't it. Uh, I do think a lot of uh, folks have moved to collaboration software to replace email. Um, I use Basecamp as a collaboration platform um, with other state virtual schools. We have a Basecamp we've set up to, to discuss. Um, of course, Microsoft Teams is a modern version of that. And for some reason, oh, Slack is the one I'm thinking of. Slack is a very popular collaboration tool that replaces email. And there's a lot of Slacks uh, between people with similar interests or inside of organizations. Um, but the bottom line is, is that that does a great job of taking conversations that aren't great on email and taking them off of email, but email remains an incredibly important part of the universe. 
Um, and I did add one link, or I, I will add one link that I, I just looked up. Um, you know, Google has been tackling this problem, been attempting to tackle this problem. And in 2009, they released a um, a tool that attempted to get rid of the terribleness of email. And that email or that tool is called Google Wave. And uh, I utilized Google Wave with students, actually. My newspaper staff, when I was running the newspaper at Capitol High School in Helena, Montana, um, attempted to use that as a collaboration tool. We liked it. I mean, it had some bumps to it and, um, you know, was it wasn't great. But unfortunately, Google abandoned it uh, just months uh, after they had um, uh, released it. And it's after uh, mainstream tech media, Gina Trapani re- released a book on Google Wave when she was the uh, uh, founding editor of Lifehacker and yada, yada, yada. And that's now, now still maintained. Like, it's it's been uh, open sourced and Apache actually is the home of, of, of Wave. It's called Apache Wave now. I don't know anyone on Earth that uses it, even though it's open source software. But, you know, yeah, email's terrible, but I still don't know what the alternative is. Well, I, I dropped a link also uh, into that subsection uh, for Hop for email. Have you tried Hop yet, Jason? I have not. Okay, well, <clears throat> I have to be really careful talking about email as if I am an authority and, you know, have my email life together because, <clears throat> like, Probably a few of you out there, uh, you know, my email life is not under very good control. I, I officed for a couple years out in Yukon with my friend Adam Zadro. I'll give him a shout out <clears throat> because Adam was the, the inbox zero Yoda, you know, and I just would look enviously over at, at his screen to see the, the three or four emails that had just come in. You know, because he was just very diligent every day about about inbox zero. And by the way, if you're not familiar with the GTD framework of getting things done and the whole inbox zero concept, um, I'll drop those links in as well because those are our books worth getting and, and and strategies for productivity that that are important. And really, we should teach this in school, right? Because it's important to be able to manage your email, literally. Two nights ago, I just helped our our almost 18-year-old set up in Google Chrome four different personas because she now has her Oklahoma City Schools provided email, a Gmail account. She has her personal Gmail. Um, Now she's taking a concurrent college class at the University of Central Oklahoma, and they've given her a Gmail account. And actually, I don't know what her fourth one is. She's got a fourth account. So anyway, she was getting very frustrated as far as the access and, and, and issues. And so these are things that we need to not assume people will just figure out. Well, Hop is the latest thing that I've found. And I like it mostly on my iPad, um, although I am using it now on my Android phone, um, and it had used it on my iPhone. I think you can just jump right into it. It, um, it, it reminds me, Google, in addition to Google Wave, came out with Google Inbox a number of years ago, and part of what they're trying to do with Inbox was allow you to use swipes and just faster processing. Hop makes your email more like text messaging, so perhaps it's it makes it a little Slack-like. You can decide how to organize your messages. The most beautiful thing that I love about Hop is that everybody who is not in your inbox goes into an other category. And then when you want to, you can go into that other section and if you choose to delete, for instance, I, I get a lot of notifications for WordPress sites that I maintain, and I kind of wish sometimes I just had those turned off, but with a single swipe in, in a few cases, you know, I can have tens or even hundreds of emails if I've gotten a lot of notifications I haven't deleted. They can all be, you know, either archived or they can be trashed. And, you know, what I, what I am personally trying to do is sit down for 
maybe 10 minutes and I'm, I'm not doing very good about this. So I'll just, you can be my accountability partner for it, Jason. Um, and just, you know, say, I'm going to sit down with hop and I'm going to process email for 10 minutes or for 15 minutes. <clears throat> the really smart thing that the getting things done framework, I think David Allen is the author of that yes. is he talks about processing your email and that you should sit down. And if you can get something done in like one or two minutes, then you do it. Otherwise you have a place that you put it to be processed, you know, but, but then you're able to clear through your, your inbox. So it's, it's a struggle. Um, you know, we, we don't probably like most K-12 schools, you know, have any firm rules about the number of emails or what can be sent out at, at the university. When I was at Texas tech, you know, they had a, an email digest. And if you had, it's called tech announce, it was great. And, you know, people who had announcements would send it there and you could either receive them as they were announced, which would be crazy. Um, but most people would get a digest version. So you get one email it had all the announcements and it just helped manage the quantity. Um, so I definitely agree that, you know, email continues to be a, a hugely important common denominator communications protocol. Um, I think all of us would probably benefit from being more intentional about teaching email skills, talking yes. to, to teachers, talking to administrators. When I talk to our, our principals, uh, their division directors at our school, you know, email is consistently one of their biggest pain points. And so, uh, if you've got resources and suggestions beyond what we're talking about here, you know, please let us know. Reach out to Jason or I on Twitter. Yep. Uh, reach out to us um, via EdTechSR, and let us let us know because we're <laughs> we're we're building the plane as we fly it, right? With this digital communication stuff, right. and it it behooves us all to not only think about tools and apps, but also to think about strategies. And depending upon our situation, and you know. As a classroom teacher, you don't have the flexibility unless you, you know, you just go in early to sit right. down and, and, you know, do something for 10 or 15 minutes. But that may be the strategy that you need, uh, because probably most schools and we, we do have a requirement, you know, within 24 hours, all emails are supposed to be responded to. And yep. that, that can be a challenge when you are in a state of overwhelm with, with email right. and things can slip through. And you remind me, Wes, of, of an important notion. I think a lot of people that are overwhelmed with their email, probably that's not the only part of their life that's a, a, it needs a little bit of, of rethinking, right? Like in regards to productivity. And I think I put a link to David Allen's book in, in uh, the show notes. And by the way, you can always get our show notes and every link we look at at the EdTech Situation Room website, www.edtechsr.com. And um, I'm a big disciple of David Allen. I don't follow the system point by point, and part of it's because I think if I did, it would probably lead to more stress than less, but I've adopted a number of his suggestions and worked into my daily workflow, and I'm, I'm kind of a geek in, in the workflow thing, so I, I think a lot about workflows, right, and how I can make things efficient as possible so I can process information requests. Uh, emails, communications as efficiently as possible. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, if email is terrible for you, it's not just the medium. To be honest, if everything that you got an email moved to text messaging, if you find that to be preferable, you would be overwhelmed by text messaging then, right? But I think taking on the inbox zero philosophy, also something that I work pretty hard at. Uh, if you take on the getting things done philosophy, if you take a little bit from each one of them, I think that's a, a critical piece here. And if, if you're a professional and you're expected to answer emails, some thought through processes, right? And when to do it and when to answer back, or if you want to get super geeky and do what I do and utilize some kind of templates related to saying things back so you can add Insta pleasantries, 
that's also a great philosophy too. But the bottom line is, is that the tool is as good as the users, right? Um, and also, you have to think about that email introduces all sorts of new things into things. As an example of this, I have a three email rule. If I'm having a contentious discussion from someone, the second I try to reply a third time, I know it's time to pick up the phone and talk, period, end of sentence. Or if a comment gets misinterpreted, it's time to call that person on the telephone and have a telephone conversation. And I, I'll tell you, I've, I've probably written hundreds of thousands of emails since taking this job in, in 2010, and um, I've had people freak out because of an exclamation mark that they thought was insulting. And I don't think it was, and it wasn't intended that way, and I had to backpedal that. I was actually excited to share a piece of information with this person, but the bottom line is, is the email can be sticky in that way. So use it wisely, I think, is part of it. Well, uh, Peggy George has joined us, and but she's having some trouble getting the chat to work for some reason. I'm not sure what's up with that. Um, but last week, she had put in the chat she was interested in the Firefox article. So, Jason, you want to yes. take us through a couple of those Firefox Yes. Um, so this is something interesting, um, and I've been aware of this for about six weeks because I had started reading that, that Firefox was going to introduce a new version that they were calling Firefox Quantum um, for quite some time now. They've been developing this new version of Firefox, and I want to say it was version 57. Firefox works the same way as Chrome, and then they update fairly regularly to new versions as opposed to having big new versions, you know, uh, over long periods of time. They're constantly updating the platform and then uh, releasing new versions. But Firefox Quantum or just Firefox 57, so if you just go download Firefox, you get Quantum, is a pretty substantial reboot of Firefox. Now, what has happened in the last seven years is that Internet Explorer, well, it used to be that there were kind of two games in town in the modern web browsers. There was uh, uh, Independent or I Independent Explorer in it, the, the Internet Explorer. The Blue E. Some people just thought right. the Internet was the Blue E. Where'd the Internet right, go? Right, right. The Internet, right? Um, and uh, and I have a story about an in-law that I'm not going to say right now with that very piece. But uh, the bottom line is that you know there was Internet Explorer, which was dominant, and then Firefox was the open source alternative, and that was the two games in town. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago-ish, Chrome started to become an alternative to that and um, started slowly gaining market share because of its simplicity and its stability. And over time, Chrome has become the dominant web browser. I think 85% of users are using Chrome on a fairly regular basis now. That includes, um, and actually now I'm going to go look at that because Wes reacted, uh, and I wonder if I'm correct in that. But the bottom line, oh, wow, I think it's pretty, pretty close to that. Um, the what, What's going on now is that uh, Chrome is uh, obviously the dominant web browser. Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Uh, Chrome... Um, ZDNet in, gen in January said, you know, Chrome is, is the leader. Um, but its statistics had Chrome... Well, and it's also whether you're mobile or desktop and mobiles, you know, but it had Chrome at, at uh, 45%, Safari at a quarter, um, IE at 15 and Firefox only at 7.4. So f Firefox has definitely taken a hit. If we were going to ask Rachel to do a little, uh, you know, scatter plot or whatever or trend, trend graph, uh, we would, we would see 
you know, Internet Explorer. You know, by the way, friends don't let friends use Internet Explorer, right? Yeah. Especially now that it's no longer supported. But that's yeah. been true for me for, for years. Yeah, me too. So, and I also put the W3 stats in there. They report uh, uh, Chrome at 60%, Safari at 13%, Internet Explorer and Edge to get to 9.8, and Firefox at under 10. The bottom line is Chrome is still the dominant web browser um, in a desktop and, and mobile computing. But the interesting piece of that is that Firefox has had a smaller market share, but they've been quietly working on this new version. So uh, Firefox Quantum was available in beta several weeks ago. I downloaded it, and I'm not used to being stunned, but I was stunned at the speed of the browser. It felt crisp. It had a nice, clean design, which Firefox has always had a, a decently clean design. Of course, you can modify it, which is one of the powers of the browser. But more importantly, I felt like it felt crisper um, when surfing the web um, on my work connection. Now, uh, one of the things that's true about working at a large university like I do, my uh, office on the university campus, we have shocking amounts of bandwidth because we have, you know, tens of thousands of users on campus. So in the summertime when there's no students there, I can regularly get 800, 900 megabits per second download. So a lot of times the speed of my internet is more to do with the browser at work than it is the internet speed, because the internet is consistently very fast where I work, right? It's a little different at home and a little different mobile. But I noticed immediately that pages loaded up in a crisp and nice way, and that the opening of tabs was felt a lot crisper, and the memory usage, particularly on Windows, and a lesser extent Mac, because Mac tends to use all the memory just very efficiently and, and, and for speed, but on Windows, the, the memory taxing of, of, of the browser went down dramatically compared to when I was using Chrome. And up until this point, Firefox is always my secondary browser. So, you know, the power hint is if you go from one browser to another, or I'm sorry, if something doesn't work in one browser, open up the other, and you can usually copy-paste the link in there, and you'll get at least a different experience, if not a better and working experience. But I very much enjoyed the Firefox experience. Now, as of late November, that's the standard Firefox um, uh, uh, browser. It's the Quantum browser. You can download it on mobile or on desktop, and it is fabulously fast. Um, and uh, what's been interesting is there's been a lot of hand-wringing about this in the last two weeks since it was released. And some people, well, first of all, like, you know, they copied Chrome. Some claims of, of, of Chrome advocates, uh, that's neither true nor does it matter, to be quite honest. And the second piece is, I think the world's a better place when we have multiple competitive browsers, especially free non-operating system browsers, right? Like, I, I happen to like Microsoft Edge on Windows. It's, it's, it's pretty crisp and works a little better on low-end PCs uh, inside of Windows 10. But having both Chrome and Firefox available to me and both of them being powerful means that Chrome is going to get better. There's no, there's, there's no doubt about that for me. So even if you're a Chrome user, I think you should be applauding the fact that there is a, a great alternative to Chrome, major alternative to Chrome that's fast and stable. So I've been super impressed by Firefox Quantum. What about you, Wes? Just play with it a little bit and not enough to, to have a good opinion. So it is interesting to me about our investment in these different platforms. And when I was still an iPhone user, isn't that sad to say? I'll, and I will also digress and say I miss the microphone. I miss the, the, um, the speakers and I, I miss the, the quality of the camera. But anyway, yes. I, I enjoyed being able to just use Chrome as my primary, right? On my iPhone, I had, 
uh, Google Chrome and Safari, but I would tend to use Safari all the time. But I'm in Chrome all the time. That's where all my bookmarks are. That's where my web history is. So anyway, it's it's nice to, to have that here. So I think I will dabble with it. But like, like some other things, I mean, you're going to have to have a, a significant push to, to get you to to change ecosystems when, when you've invested. And so um, we still have, I don't know, probably 30% quarter. I, I don't have the numbers of our faculty that prefer Firefox. And it's, it's the baby duck syndrome thing. I think, you know, they got used to that. That's what they, that's what they've used. And that's where their bookmarks are. And that that's where they tend to live. So ho- hopefully it's going to, it's not going to make it that much of a difference, right? That's the dream of the web and web standards <clears throat> is that whether you're using Safari or Chrome or, you know, Microsoft's um, Edge or whatever, it, that, that it shouldn't matter. And we certainly are in a much better place than we were 10 years ago. You know, I remember banking websites. Sometimes you'd have to put little extensions into Firefox or Chrome. Let me pretend to be Internet Explorer because my bank only, you know, accepts Internet Explorer requests. Um, you know, we've, we've come a good distance from that. But, yep. it's, uh, yeah, definitely good to see the competition and, and worth taking a look at because, again, from a security standpoint, it's, it's not just speed as far as convenience. It's also security. And what are the affordances that <clears throat> these browsers are going to provide in terms of yep. trying to help identify malicious websites? I know Chrome does a, a pretty fantastic job of that, alerting you, you know, if you're going to be subject to a man-in-the-middle attack or something like that where there's a certificate and you're not, you know, having a, a secure connection. So hopefully we'll just continue to see see that march forward. Sure. And then I do want to point out, because this is the EdTech podcast that's a bit geeky, uh, the uh, article I showed or uh, that I point to in the show notes from the How To Geek talks about some of the deeper processes of why Firefox really is a couple of steps forward. Uh, the architecture for extensions and plugins is very advanced on Firefox, and they claim more advanced than Chrome. And then there's been a lot of changes under the hood that uh, essentially make it a modern web browser so that it can't hijack the available range on your computer, and I, I have actually run into this. I'm a guy that usually uses a computer with eight or sixteen gigabytes of RAM. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, a, a bit geeky, but the bottom line is, is that you know, if since I, I do run a digital school, I spend ninety five percent of my time on a browser. I have tabs of RAM open pretty much the entire workday long, right? So um, being able to have a, a web browser that better uh, handles multiple tabs is able to decrease the memory usage of active tabs in the background. That's also a great thing as well. So we're uh, approaching the top of the hour. Um, it'd probably be good to get through a few more of these. I'd like to quickly jump to AI automation, and, and then Jason may have another category to jump to. Um, we need to be talking about trucking in America, right? Uh, several articles t- tonight, Wired Magazine, November 17th, will Tesla's automated truck kill trucking jobs? I think this actually came out when I was in Egypt. Um, but, you know, Tesla has announced this this 18-wheeler that uh, can go 500 miles and costs a lot less than what they had expected. Um, this is happening now. Like, this is not Star Trek science fiction Automation is coming to trucking, and the speed at which that comes to us as consumers, I think, is a little bit more debatable. And you know, if you got a really good idea about that, hopefully, you're investing in the stock market, and you and Warren Buffett are going to be are going to be doing very well. <clears throat> but because of the economics with trucking and the ways in which corporations are going to maximize their profits, and the ways that these technologies are proven, and we've got just large, you know, distances to traverse in the United States and elsewhere. 
uh, where there's just really not a lot of, of challenge, you know, this is happening. Um, Vox has a great video from November 20th called How Job Surveillance is Transforming Trucking in America. And shout out to our son, Alexander, who told me about this. It's about a, a you know, 10-minute video, but it is fascinating. And I had no idea that it has become a law now in the United States that truckers have to actually have these boxes that are requiring, you know, it's it's called an EL is it ELD electronic logging device, and and it's taken away some of the autonomy, a lot of the autonomy that truckers have had. You know, they could be ten minutes or twenty minutes away from their house, but suddenly they reach their their hourly limit or whatever. They got to shut down. They got to quit, um, and it. It's it's really an electronic leash. So it details the protests that are happening there, but it, it's also just tied to how quickly, you know, truckers are going to become a much more scarce commodity as far as folks, you know, employed in the workforce. And this is a huge deal. We shared this on the show a number of weeks ago that the number one job in 23 American states in, in 2014, including Oklahoma, was trucking. So if you think about that kind of disruption, um, I think you, Jason, had dropped the USA Today article uh, November 28th, automation could kill 73 million U.S. jobs by 2030. Do you think that's hyperbole? No, I don't think it is at all. And even if it doesn't kill off those jobs, it's going to change them substantially to where they're not going to look anything like they do today. And we uh, it, it's been a while since we ranted about this, and it feels like the first half of our episodes are a lot about automation and kind of hand-wringing about it, but it's true, right? I, I, I keep thinking about that I, I should write a book on this because I, I think there's a... There's something here that we're not really acknowledging in schools because I think we're um, in the same way that um, I didn't used to believe in the we're training kids for jobs that don't exist thing. And I didn't say, uh, you know, then suddenly I had a job that didn't exist five years prior at all. Right. So I, I've been kind of a, a, a more or less acquired to that now. But the, the bottom line is, is that. things are going to change so fundamentally in the United States when it comes to labor and we're not prepared for it in even the least. And one of the things that's also true, and I know that, that Wes in the past, you've talked about guaranteed basic income as one strategy for this. I think it's probably a little bit of that UBI universal basic income. Basic income. The other thing that that's also probably true is that work weeks are going to look different and jobs are going to look different. And one of the things I firmly believe, and at some point we may want to talk about this in a little bit of a deeper way um, is that schools are a place where technology can't replace a lot of the interpersonal places in schools. And so one thing that I think it's probably going to expand is we're going to have to dramatically expand the number of education jobs. They're going to look differently. Classrooms are going to look differently. They're going to be smaller. Um, there's going to be different levels of folks. I think there's going to be everything from master teachers to folks that are assessment specialists that are all doing dealing with smaller numbers of students, not because that's better for education, Although it is better for education, it's because we're not going to have jobs if 77 million jobs are going to disappear in the next decade. And so we have to start thinking strategically about this. And right now, we're not. So uh, there's a lot there. The truck driving thing is interesting. Um, You know, Tesla's working on uh, an electric truck now that could be easily become a a driverless truck if it goes in that direction, although there's some question of whether or not um, the, the, the literally five-ton battery that's going to require to get eight hours worth of driving time is going to be possible um, in, the, in, in uh, uh, the, the current battery technology. But the bottom line is, is that this is coming to a labor market near you. 
So we have to be proactive about how we deal with this as a society. And we're not looking about, I don't think it's like we're doing anything about this, right? We're busily blaming globalization for this. That's a factor. But automation is going to put the jobs laws to globalization to shame. Uh, Peggy has a question back to our Firefox topic. Are there any apps in Firefox that can provide things like we have in the Chrome extensions? I mean, there are extensions for Firefox, right? Like yeah. uh, uBlock Origin that I mentioned, I dropped the link to the Firefox version as well as the, the Chrome version. I think that browsers are equivalent in that respect. Safari did not have the ability to have any kind of extensions, and there is some limited functionality there, but as an open platform, Firefox absolutely supports uh, extensions, and, you know, I think that's an, another hallmark of a great browser is extensibility and the ability right. to, you know, add to that. So you can do that yeah. with Firefox and, as well. And I know specifically, um, for my work extensions, I did set up Firefox at work to be, and I set up the sync and everything so it works like my Chrome browser does, and uh, about, uh, I think, 9 out of 10 of the uh, extensions that I use on Chrome were available, not just alternatives, like the actual extension was available in Firefox. Very good. Well, hey, you want to take us to another topic uh, or article series before we geek of the week it? Sure, let's do a quick one here. Uh, I put these Chrome updates last weekend. We don't have to talk about them extensively because we, we've been talking about uh, Chromebooks uh, a lot lately. But two things that are interesting. First and foremost, um, now 60 different Chromebooks have Android apps enabled in the stable channel, which means that you can download uh, 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 lots, hundreds of thousands of Android apps and utilize them on, on that desktop. It means also that every Chromebook I use now has a an app architecture on it and uh, interesting, I think, and it's, there's still a lot to do there. Uh, we have a forthcoming show uh, at some point to talk about Chromebooks in some depth. Uh, maybe it's the defensive Chromebook show, but that's an interesting piece. Uh, the second thing that also happened in the, in the last week is that Microsoft Office mobile apps are now available in the, the Chrome store on Chrome. I'm sorry, the Android store on Chromebooks. And um, for those of you that don't know, Microsoft has done an extraordinarily good job of creating functional mobile apps for iOS and Android devices. As soon as the Windows Phone looked like it was going to go away from a, from a platform standpoint, they went kind of all in on having Microsoft Office on every device. And so there's beautiful and well done apps on iOS and Android, those apps are now installable on Chromebooks that can install Android apps. It hasn't been true to this point. A limited number of, of Chromebooks for a small amount of time were able to install uh, PowerPoint, Word, Excel. That has changed in the last week, and now on my devices that can download Android apps to the Chromebook, I can install Word and Android and Power. I'm sorry, Word and Excel and PowerPoint. And it's still not the full desktop experience, right? They are limited in what they can do. But because I have a personal Office 365 subscription, I can download something to Word for Android on Chromebook and edit it without issue. And it's pretty stable and pretty slick with it. So please keep your eyes peeled for when we can run full-blown Minecraft on Chromebooks. The technologies you talked about a couple of weeks ago, being able to run uh, a, a window, uh, you know, windowed version of Photoshop or, or other kinds of things. I, I'll be very curious about that. Yep. Okay, that's it from Chrome World.
All right. Well, it's the top of the hour, so I'll do my Geek of the Week, and then, Jason, you can, and we'll take us out. Um, mine comes to us from J. Matt Miller, and it is a free online conference that will feature nine presenters and be the last half of December. It starts December 15th through the end of the month and is called the Ditch That Textbook Summit. So you can head over to ditchsummit.com, and it looks like it's worth trying out. It is completely free. You just uh, put in your email and sign up. And actually, I'm not even sure. They're, they are giving away a couple Chromebooks. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, some familiar faces, uh, Don Wetrick, uh, Eric Kurtz, uh, John Carippo, um, Michael Matera, who's just awesome. Of course, Matt Miller, Tanya Averth, and Holly Clark. So it's, uh, it's going to be good, uh, Sarah Thomas. Um, and I look forward to being able to, of course, be a geek during the <laughs> Christmas holidays and continue the learning. So sometimes my wife is ready to say, just let it stop. Uh, and we do from time to time. But there is quite a bit of tech learning that continues even in the holidays. And this looks like a great opportunity to, to do that. Excellent. And I would like to go to an oldie and a goodie. Uh, Google Voice is an outstanding tool available for Google, from Google. And the reason why I mention it is because there have been a lot of rumors in the last couple of weeks that Google is going to jump back on Google Voice and start to add some new functionality to it. For those of you unaware of this, Google Voice, I think, is a great teacher tool. Essentially, what it allows you to do is you go to voice.google.com or google.com slash voice, and you get to create a phone number right, that sits on top of your phone number. And what I mean by that is that instead of um, giving a, your, your personal cell phone number out, you can give instead your Google Voice number out and give that to students instead, which means that when you want to turn Google Voice off or if you don't want to be on your phone, you can still do that and maintain more control than you would be able to do otherwise. And one of the things that we recommend uh, for all of our teachers at, at the Digital Academy is that we think having a smartphone and texting with kids is a pretty critical part of the infrastructure. But we ask them to use Google Voice because that way they can add some control of when uh, you know when t- uh, notifications or text messages come over, when you will allow calls. You can control when calls come through. It gives you a very micro uh, control valve so that you can decide when and where you want calls to come from your Google Voice number. That's voice.google.com. By the way, um, Wes, Minecraft, $6.99 in the Android store, available on Chromebooks. What? Yep. No way. Yep. In fact, I think I've got credit, so I'm going to go ahead and buy it now, and I'll let you know what it looks like. Huh. Okay, man. That's we're, The world is rapidly changing. There's your evidence. Well, there it is. If you'd like to find me online, I am W. Fryer, and I am not going to be traveling internationally for a while, and uh, glad to be back stateside, uh, blogspeedofcreativity.org, and uh, would do a shout-out to our Oklahoma State Department of Education doing a series of webinars about coding with kids this week in anticipation of, I think, Computer Science Week, uh, maybe next week, the Hour of Code coming up. And so tonight, my wife, Shelly, shared a presentation about Scratch Junior and PBS Scratch Junior and coding with kids. She did an eight-week after-school class uh, with uh, second through fourth graders and really had a lot of fun with that. And then tomorrow night uh, at 7 p.m. Central, I'll be doing a free webinar about Scratch. And uh, I think I've 
calling it something like developing computational thinking with Scratch. But if you are not on the Scratch bandwagon, if you do not have people in your area uh, sharing Scratch with kids, encouraging them to do coding and create, use their, use their creativity, uh, imagination, connect with other kids around the world, it's a thing to do. Look at that. Minecraft, and you're on a, you're on your Chromebook right now? I am on a Chromebook, and let me see if I can make it full screen without this crashing everything. Um, oh, good. Full screen doesn't work. But, hey, you get the basic idea. So um, I will oh. play with that and see how stable it is. It could also be that the fact that I'm actually, uh, the Chromebook is plugged into a, um, a Chromebook is plugged into a docking station, a USB docking station. I'm actually not on the Chromebook monitor. I'm on the docking station monitor. So I'll Are play with it the, and let you know. You on the Pixel? I am. Yeah, sweet. Well, where can folks find you? Well, I'm on the Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and I try to share 20, 25 links a week of interesting things I'm reading about in the technology world that usually has a education focus, so please uh, see me there. I'm also the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, the Northwest Pacific Northwest ISTE affiliate, and as a reminder, our conference, the NCC conference, is February 16th to 18th in fabulous Seattle, Washington. Dan Rather is our keynote speaker, and he's going to come talk about tech and new and other exciting things, and registration is open right now, www.ncc.org or the Tech Savvy Teacher blog blog.ncc.org. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I like to get together and occasionally bring in guests and friends to talk about tech in the classroom. We are here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 2 a.m. UTC, and I might be making that note, but I think it's the right time. And of course, you can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. So if you like to go to your favorite podcast app or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio or wherever you can find that, or you can simply ask your Google Home to play the EdTech Situation Room, and it will always play you the latest episode. So for now, my name is Jason Neifer, along with Wes Fryer. We wish you a good morning, good evening, good night, and hope to see you next week on the EdTech Situation Room Podcast.